Good evening and welcome. My name is Fred Paul and you are watching ADH TV, the new home for common sense commentary in Australia. Well, we saw many of the fundamental principles of Western civilization swept away by our governments in response to the so-called COVID pandemic. Ordinary people lost their freedom of movement, their freedom of speech, and their freedom of bodily autonomy. It's important to remember that these restrictions didn't apply so much to the ruling class, who were less affected by the lockdowns and restrictions than, for example, children who missed out on school and the poor who were imprisoned in tiny homes, ironically making the virus more contagious anyway. And now we are seeing another fundamental principle disappear, like so many millions of discarded face nappies down a stormwater drain. That is the concept of responsibility and remorse. Our society has become so risk-free, so protective of people's rights not to bear responsibility, that even some of the most disgustingly egregious decisions ever made by an Australian politician in our history can be swept aside like leaves off a driveway. As, you're, as you've probably heard, a new report has added to the increasing number published around the world, finding that, generally speaking, the harsher a government's response to the pandemic, the more destructive it was. The latest report, titled Fault Lines, was headed by academic and former secretary of the Department of Prime Minister under John Howard, Peter Shergold. It consulted 200 experts, received 160 submissions and conducted 3,000 hours of research and analysis. It found, among other things, quote, there were too many instances in which government regulations and their enforcement went beyond what was required to control the spread of the virus even when based on the information available at the time." Unquote. It's pertinent to remember that just saying that only a year ago was enough to get you kicked off social media, potentially sacked from your job and shunned by polite society. The report also found that economic support should have been provided more fairly to Australians, Lockdowns and borders, border closures should have been used less. Schools should have stayed open and older people should have been better protected. Very few governments anywhere in the world committed all these policy er errors more severely than the one in Victoria led by Premier Daniel Andrews. Now that the truth is starting to emerge, there are plenty of people who should be issuing apologies for getting it so wrong, and none quicker than Andrews himself. So how did he respond to the release of the report today? Quote, there are many things we wish we didn't do, many decisions we wish we didn't make. These decisions were not made lightly, and they were the subject of debate and discussion and very careful consideration." Unquote. Really, Dan? If your debates and discussions were so carefully considered and reasonable, then perhaps you'd like to share them with the public. Some of the most consequential political discussions ever held in Australian history were conducted during 2020 and 2021 by National Cabinet, 
which consists of all the state premiers, that's you, Dan, and the Prime Minister. National Cabinet was created especially for the pandemic response by then Prime Minister Scott Morrison. Morrison assumed it would be protected by the same confidentiality that applies to federal cabinet. Turns out it wasn't. Former independent South Australian Senator Rex Patrick challenged the National Cabinet's secrecy in the Administrative Appeals Tribunal and won in August last year. Morrison's government challenged the decision and just simply refused to comply. His replacement since June this year, Prime Minister Anthony Albanese, is on a unity ticket on this one and is also refusing to release national cabinet documents. Most of the people present at those discussions were his Labor Premier mates, you understand. To be clear, Patrick is not seeking access to National Cabinet's deliberations, just the health and economic advice the politicians received and the reasoning behind the decisions they made. Andrews assures us National Cabinet's deliberations were careful and considered. So what on earth have they got to hide? Here's just one instance where the decision-making became murky. In, in November last year, Queensland LNP Senator Jared Rennick went to the office of then Health Minister Greg Hunt and asked him to postpone the rollout of Moderna vaccines for young people, which had been available since August. Rennick had seen on the Australian Therapeutic Goods Administration's database a report possibly linking Moderna to the death, that's right, the death of a 14-year-old Australian girl. Hunt dismissed Rennick's concerns. Like all the vaccines, Moderna is still available as a booster, despite the increasing evidence of the harm it and the other vaccines cause. Rennick says 140,000 adverse reactions to the vaccines have been recorded in Australia, which is four to five times the number of all adverse reactions to all other vaccines in Australia since 1971. He says, quote, you could say they, which he, by which he means Australia's senior politicians, were naively ignorant up until December last year. But by December, it was very apparent that young people were being seriously injured by the vaccine." Unquote. Hoping for a mea culpa from these politicians is the least of our worries, Rennick says. Referring to the latest reports vindicating those who remained skeptical throughout the pandemic and lockdowns, he says, quote, I fear that we haven't seen the last of it. The government overreached, and when it suits them politically, they will try it on again in the future. Well, they won't if we vote them out, starting with Dan Andrews in five weeks' time. To use a sporting analogy, if you're a conservative, the Australian political field is awash with free kicks at the moment. 
It's rare, it's rare in Australian history for one party to field a team so devoid of charisma, skill and intelligence and yet still be dominating on the scoreboard. The best Labor can offer is to spend and spend its way back into office while plunging the nation into net zero darkness. You'd think that the coalition parties would be absolutely frothing about getting out there, lay a few tackles and put some goals on the board. Peter Dutton, where are you? Your opponent can't get his foot out of his mouth. This week alone, his government has deeply offended a democratic ally, Israel, while earning praise from Hamas, a terrorist organisation. He's spending like a drunken sailor in Victoria to get his mate Premier Dan Andrews over the line in the forthcoming state election. And he's doubling down on the Indigenous voice to Parliament when the real Indigenous issue is the crisis of violence in outback communities. Dutton, of all people, should know this because he visited those communities this week. To discuss how frustrating this is for, co for the Coalition's traditional supporters, let's bring in Institute of Public Affairs spokesman John Roskam. John, welcome. Hello, Fred. John, let's start with Victoria, shall we? Why is Liberal leader Matthew Guy so determined not to win the forthcoming state election? Well, Fred, it looks that way, doesn't it? And as a lifelong Victorian, I'm devastated by what's happening to this state and what could happen if Daniel Andrews is re-elected next month, as most likely he will be if the polls are to be believed. I think what ha has happened is um, the Liberals at the state level have lost their way. On some issues, they are more left-wing if even possible than Dan Andrews. Uh, there's a lot of issues they won't fight, such as on education. The coalition supports a treaty to divide Victorians. Uh, and the few policies that the coalition does have, such as um, reducing payroll tax, which is important, are absolutely buried by the steamroller of uh, the Daniel Andrews advertising electoral machine. So you need a coalition to take on Dan Andrews that is brave, that takes risks, that knows what it believes in, that's not going to be intimidated by the ABC. And that doesn't seem to be happening. And a final point to make, Fred, about what's happening here in Victoria is um, Dan Andrews, just like uh, Matthew Guy and the coalition, doesn't want to talk about the last two and a half years. Now, at one level, that's understandable, but for many Victorians, there's going to be no account of the disastrous policies uh, that were inflicted basically on a bipartisan basis uh, on us here in Victoria. Is it an uncomfortable topic for Victorians to talk about the past two years? Well, it's a, I describe it, Fred, as a way of coping. It is uncomfortable. Um, so many people who supported Dan Andrews have now been proved wrong. The experts have been proved wrong. We were told here in Victoria that net zero COVID was possible. Uh, we were meant to celebrate the donut days. Now, we know about experts over a few thousand years of human history that they're never going to admit they were wrong. Too many people uh, have been complicit in what has happened. There's been no reckoning. Uh, those who said that the disastrous consequences would take place uh, were silenced. 
Um, and what is now ha- interesting that's happening in Melbourne is um, there's more and more people saying, well, I, I had questions about this all along. No, they didn't. Those such as you, Fred, such as the Institute of Public Affairs, others, brave, some you know, brave medical pe- practitioners uh, who raised questions about what would be the impact of uh, shutting schools be, um, were ignored, uh, were vilified, and now we have the consequences. So we have um, a major new independent report saying schools should never have been closed, and people are saying, well, we didn't know the consequences of closing schools. Well, yes, you did. You knew exactly what you were going to do, and we're now suffering the consequences. So now that's a long answer, Fred, um, to the many complicated things that are happening and have happened here in Victoria. Well, just tell us, though, what's the mood among Liberals in Victoria? I mean, they must be feeling quite frustrated. Well, it's not just a mood amongst Liberals or Liberal Party members such as I am. It's uh, a view amongst Victorians who want an alternative. Um, And people are dispirited. Um, People are bitter. They're angry. Um, We know about politics um, that you're not going to win every election, but you want to believe in something. You want to have a go. Um, And that isn't happening. Um, And there's something else that's really important that people around Australia need to know about in relation to Victoria, which is that Dan Andrews' new donation laws make it practically impossible for anyone uh, to challenge the Labor government. So you've got a $4,000 spending limit over four years that any individual can uh, donate to a political party. Now, for me, that's a threat to democracy. That strangles democracy. That embeds the power of the ABC, of the Labor Party, of the trade unions. Um, and that was a policy, remember, that by and large the Liberal Party supported. Um, but it leaves, so, it, but it uh, leaves it, I mean, that prevents new parties coming into the fold. So it pretty much leaves the Liberal coalition to fight the fight. Now, let's, it's not too late for Matthew Guy to, you know, take the gloves off or even put the gloves on for that matter. I mean, if he were to alter course now, what sort of package do you think he should take to the electorate that would resonate? Well, it's a package that talks about power, that rejects uh, the Labor government's plans to uh, accelerate net zero, to shut down coal-fired power station. It's a plan that has to involve our culture and our history and what is being taught to young people. Uh, it's a plan that has to say the Melbourne CBD is close to unlivable and unworkable in. Um, It's a plan that says, I have a better vision for Victoria. It's not a plan that says, me too, which is what it looks like at the moment. Yeah. Well, let's talk about federal now and Peter Dutton. People are saying, people keep telling me anyway, that Peter Dutton, the federal opposition leader, is allowing Prime Minister Anthony Albanese the obligatory honeymoon period. But it doesn't wash with me. I mean, he's obliged to have a crack and Albo at the moment is committing the nation to absolutely catastrophic ideas, especially regarding net zero. Shouldn't Dutton step up? Well, I think it's for all of the federal shadow cabinet to to step up. Um, We're coming up to close to six months since the federal election. Uh, We haven't had Uh, new policies as yet. We haven't had new ideas as yet. I think there's too many people uh, who are now pretty comfortable in opposition, who are pretty comfortable in government, uh, who were part of uh, the many failures of the Morrison government 
and by speaking up and saying things might change, then uh, that is to admit uh, they were part of a government that was not good for Australia. I think the other thing that's happening is uh, the coalition is still licking its wounds. The coalition has to decide, is it a party of the centre-left? Is it a party of the centre? Uh, or is it a party to stand up for mainstream Australians? And um, Peter Dutton is having to navigate all of these things. One of the first things that I think the coalition has to do and Peter Dutton has to do is say no to racial division, say no to the voice, say yes to racial equality and and make a stand. Um, and I'm hoping that will come. I think it should already have come. And I think that's part of the problem the coalition is, is facing amongst its supporters. Absolutely. Especially in Victoria and Queensland, where the state governments are already well down the track of, of dividing their citizens. Now, just getting back to a point you made a second ago, I think that the current federal opposition could, if they stood up and said, look, Scott Morrison's now gone, he's no longer our leader, we got it wrong during COVID, we promise never to do that again, and we promise to rein in the states if they ever try to lock you down. Do you think middle Australia, Menzies' forgotten people and Howard's battlers will go, hallelujah, finally someone sees it the way we do and we will vote for them at the next election. Well, I think they will, but the outcry would be enormous. Remember, Fred, as we know, as we've spoken about, the media establishment supported uh, unparalleled, arbitrary uh, policies that smashed people's human rights. Um, civil institutions supported it. So to do that, um, I think, would be a policy that acknowledges all the wrong that took place, but we can't underestimate how difficult it would be in the public debate. I think it's something the coalition should do, um, but they are very aware that rather than accounting for the past, as you just said, Fred, people would rather forget. Yeah, they would. They would. Well, I mean, if they admitted the mistake, then maybe they would forget. But at the moment, it just seems like an unresolved issue. And it would, you know, it's like uh, thalidomide back in the 60s. It took decades for, for people to admit that they got that wrong. You know, this might be the same thing. Anyway, let's turn to Britain, and, and, John. Yeah, go on, go on. Oh, so, and, and just to add to that, and um, we'll now talk about Britain, and uh, it might be uh, Liz, Liz Truss's mini budget that we're discussing, but there's something else that the coalition should acknowledge they got wrong, which is they didn't cut red tape. They didn't uh, make a substantial reduction to, to taxes. Um, they plunged us into debt with no plan to get out of that. Um, just as bad, if not almost worse than the coalition's COVID record, um, is the coalition's economic record. And the coalition... Uh, has trashed a lot of its economic legacy. So people understand um, for a time COVID uh, was a crisis that had to be managed and JobKeeper was necessary and a number of the measures were necessary. But there's been no accounting for the fact that that was then. Um, we now need to reduce the size of government. We need to cut red tape. We need to abolish net zero. We need to defend ourselves. We need energy security. They're all the things the coalition should be talking about as well. So as you said at the beginning of our discussion, Fred, you know, there's no end 
of places on the field where the coalition could find the ball. Yeah. Um, but they're not doing so at the moment. No, they're, they're still on the bench by the look of things. <laughs> now, what do you make of uh, Liz Truss's mini-budget? Well, I've, I've just written about this in my column in the Australian Financial Review, Fred, and I said a couple of things. I said um, one is a mini-budget that was mainstream conservative, that cut taxes, that reduced the size of the government, not even by that much, but it was a beginning, provoked uh, outrage because it challenged the prevailing economic orthodoxy that has led us to this economic dead end that we're in at the moment. So Liz Truss certainly didn't uh, take account of that. But there's a bigger point, which is that her budget revealed and the reaction and losing uh, or her sacking her Chancellor of the Exchequer revealed that freedom has a long way to go, that too many people have taken economic freedom for granted. We've stopped making the argument for lower taxes, for smaller government, for more private enterprise, for more initiative. Um, and as soon as you stop making that argument, you are going to lose. Freedom has sadly too often in the history of humankind been a niche issue. And uh, we've discovered that in the UK at the moment, you can call it the establishment, you can call it the blob, you can call it the WEF conspiracy, you can call it any number of things, and some of that is right and some of that is wrong. Um, but we certainly did see the institutional powers that be react viciously to uh, what I think is a simple rebalancing of the economic policy debate that Liz Truss was trying to do, and uh, um, she's comprehensively failed. Do you think she'll last? Oh, <laughs> you, you read the news from the UK and uh, it's a question of her being given minutes, hours or, or days. <laughs> minutes? So, um, I thought it was days anyway. I'm, I must be reading so, it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, indeed. So, you, you, um, you know, she's uh, lost another cabinet minister. Uh, it seems very difficult for her to survive. But I think the lesson for us in Australia or the US or those in other developed countries is um, – it shows you that when you do things, you have to stick the course. And, of course, Liz Truss said she's not changing. Well, she changed within a few moments mm. of, of the reaction. You have to prepare the public um, for what you're going to do, and Liz Truss didn't do that. And you have to mount the arguments for fairness. You have to say that cutting taxes won't just grow the economy but will be more fair. Um, and those who believe in smaller government have been comprehensively uh, out-debated on this issue for the last few decades. Well, just finally before you go, speaking of fairness and freedom, there's a, a big fight for those principles going on in Iran right now. What I find alarming is so few champions, supposed champions of fairness and freedom in the West are uh, sticking up and uh, standing up and saying, you know, good on you. What a great thing for Iran. What's your take on it, John? Well, I think too many people are aware of last time that happened some years ago. Uh, the West promised support. The West gave uh, rhetorical encouragement. Uh, they didn't follow through with that. Uh, too many people have been more interested in placating Iran than as you said earlier, uh, supporting the only democracy in the Middle East. Um, we realise that freedom is is fragile and when you have to argue it in a difficult, hard way, as you would have to um, argue it in the Middle East, uh, too many people go missing. And it, and it rings very hollow, all of these, com these uh, arguments about women's rights, 
whether in Iran or Australia or the US or anywhere else, where um, somewhere um, where women's rights are absolutely under threat in every way imaginable, um, most people are silent. Yeah, exactly. John Roskam, thanks so much for your time. Thanks, Fred. That's John Roskam of the Institute of Public Affairs. Well, you've heard of the creature from the Black Lagoon, the return of the living dead and the attack of the killer tomatoes, all fine examples of amateur Hollywood horror. Now, get ready for the rebirth of the melted virus. Only this time, it's for real, or at least it is if you read The Guardian. The first paragraph of this alarming story reads like this, quote, the next pandemic may come not from bats or birds, but from, from matter in melting ice, unquote. And let's just pause it right there. Is the author of this piece saying the last pandemic came from bats? Well, there's a bit of a warning sign right there. But let's press on, shall we? The piece says soil from Lake Hazen in Canada, north of the Arctic Circle, might contain ancient frozen viruses that are just waiting to infect new hosts. Well, waiting for what, you ask? Well, this is The Guardian, so wait no longer. Quote, the findings imply that as global temperature rise owing to climate change, it becomes more likely that viruses and bacteria locked up in glaci glaciers and permafrost could reawaken and infect local wildlife. American researchers last year found 28 new viruses in ice samples taken from Tibet, which they estimated to be 15,000 years old. It gets worse. In 2014, French scientists fossicking around in Siberia found what they called a 30,000-year-old giant virus which means it's so huge that it can be seen using a light microscope. Then buried deeper in the Guardian's report than a microbe under sheets of Arctic ice is this quote from another researcher debunking the paranoia. Quote, the likelihood of dram dramatic event events probably remains low, <laughs> unquote. Well, that's a relief. But this journalist, knows, this journalist knows not to include the reassuring quotes until long after the typical Guardian reader has stopped reading and gone off to an art gallery to glue themselves to a Van Gogh masterpiece. Just as the Guardian's editors also know never to run stories reporting that climate change, if it even exists, has led to higher crop yields, more pleasant days and fewer cyclones. They know what their readers want, predictions of catastrophe that make B-grade Hollywood horror movies look like scientific documentaries. Well, let's finish the week as usual with a chat with Nick Cater, the host of Nick Cater's Battleground here on ADH TV every Friday night, and also the executive director of the Menzies Research Center. Nick, welcome. Good evening, Fred. First, there is a new report out today, Fault Lines, headed by Peter Shergold, the former Secretary of the Prime Minister's Office under John Howard. What did you make of Fault Lines, Nick? Well, it's a start, isn't it, Fred? I mean, we said there needs to be a thorough inquiry. P Peter Shergold's a very, very good public policy expert, and, and he's, picked, he's picked 
the main issues or some of them, you know, kids, kids should not have been stopped from going to school. The lockdowns went far too far, far too often. Uh, the vulnerable were the most put upon and the vulnerable and the elderly were not looked after enough. Uh, you and I, I think, could have written that two and a half years ago. But <laughs> yeah. anyway, it's there and it's a start. It's written in fairly uh, sober public, public policy language. Uh, it, it, we need a lot more inquiries like this going a lot deeper, I think, into what I think is certainly, put it all together, it's certainly the biggest public policy failure of my lifetime. And the effects on the lives of individuals, uh, on their health, on their mental well-being, on their econ on the economy, on their outlook, uh, you know, is frightening. Um, there's a, a young intern who, who worked for me. She's uh, entering her third year at university. Next year, I think, she says she's never actually been to a physical lecture or course on campus. And that's, you know, that multiply that a, a lot of times. We need an inquiry into this. We need to know what went wrong and uh, not, not, I don't think to blame, uh, pass blame, Fred, but just in order that we don't ever do anything as mad as this again. Well, I think it's fundamentally changed the relationship between Australians and their governments, don't you think? Well, it has in a lot of ways, um, in, in horrible ways, really. And, and look, I'm talking about governments generically here. I'm not picking out um, the federal government, which, which I think took uh, a lot of the response. You know, I mean, Scott Morrison took a lot of the blame for this. Obviously, he is the federal prime minister, but a lot of things that happened were outside his control. But it is, it is this, we, we could see, you know, for the first time in my lifetime, I don't want to over-dramatise it because, look, we're not living in China or Russia or anywhere like that. But you could see how the forces that develop into totalitarianism, uh, you know, start to start to happen in your own society. I felt that at the time, uh, looking back and analysing it, I can see that that was exactly what was happening. You know, the place was succumbing to fear. Politicians were reacting to that fear. And then we end up with a mentality that says we have to protect the community, number one instead of what you know the normal principle is that we look after individuals as individuals not not some kind of overblown notion of the health of the community well let me quote from uh, fault lines the report quote too many of australia's lockdowns and border closures were the result of policy failures in quarantine contact tracing testing disease surveillance and communicating effectively the need for preventing measures like mask wearing and social distancing well, no, I'd say the policy failures began with politicians overestimating the lethality of the virus. Yeah, they're saying the lockdowns was our fault, are they? Because we didn't wear our masks. Yeah, or exactly. Yeah. No, no, wrong, wrong, wrong. All the evidence points to quite the opposite. There's the, 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 the social distancing, that wearing masks actually had very uh, relatively little effect. The virus was what it was. It was, it, you know, countries like Sweden, very diff little out difference in the outlook from or the, or the results from neighbouring countries like F Finland and Norway or Germany that adopted a different approach. Surely we should be able to look at the statistics now, which are clear as anything, and say none of that applied, that the instinct to lock, or lock down states, to, to close borders, was, was completely uh, a, 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 a patch, you know, a sort of par parochial attitude by premiers for their own political game 
they should have actually done the big thing, which is to keep this country open and to keep those border communities in particular uh, flowing. I, I think this has been a terrible episode in our public policy, and well, I hope nobody's suggesting we ever do anything like it again. Well, God forbid. It's interesting you use the word instincts, though, because I think there was an instinct or, you know, perhaps there was something more sinister afoot, but there certainly at the very least an instinct in the media to swallow all this rubbish about the lethality of the virus and the effectiveness of the vaccines. Now, I've got to give you, Nick, credit for being one of the few voices at The Australian to stand up against this, and your wife, Rebecca Weiser, I think, did probably the best reporting in the country in The Spectator. What do you make of, of how the media responded to all this? I've been thinking long and hard about it, Fred, and I think at the end of the day, it just comes down to lack of courage by individual journalists, individual editors to actually stand again. It, there was this overwhelming uh, community feeling that this virus was, was going to be like Ebola and we all had to stop it coming, you know, through our doors and everything else. You know, it, it, took, it took a little bit of intellectual independence and courage actually to look at the data for yourself and realise that no, that wasn't true, that those early figures were way overblown. You know, we knew within weeks that those figures coming out of London were, you know, predicting, you know, 150,000 deaths in three months were way overblown. Uh, we didn't see the kind of courage that we expect from the media in actually standing up, taking an independent look at things, not just swallowing the government line, not just going with the flow, but standing up and say that that's I'm sorry, that's not right. You know, you look at some of the great campaigns of the past that papers like The Australian have conducted at the time were seen to be deeply unpopular, but they were seen to be correct in the long term over. That's what journalism's there, there to do. Or the Daily Mail in World War One, you know, when it criticised the, the war effort there, and it was people people were attacking the newspaper. But by the end of the end of the World War One, people knew it was on the right side. Newspapers should take courageous stances, and, and I didn't see it in any media outlet at all, with it, with the possible exception of uh, the Spectator, I think, where editor Rowan D, you know, put, you know, held a line there against a lot of pressure. Well, I mentioned in my editorial earlier that we saw some fundamental principles swept aside. And the last of them now is the idea that those who were responsible should at least admit that they made a mistake. Mm -hmm. Now, Queensland Senator Jared Rennick told me today that politicians could be excused for having been naive up until about December last year. But after that, maybe not. What we, are, what, what we aren't seeing is politicians standing up and admitting they got it wrong. What do you reckon, Nick? Well, it's very hard for politicians to do so in the modern era, isn't it? And uh, even, if, even if they recognise they were wrong, it's seen as a sign of weakness. To me, it's a sign of strength that if politicians could say we made some wrong decisions. The other thing is, it, you know, it's a natural human instinct, isn't it? Always to stick with the decisions you made. It's, all of us find it very hard to reach a point and say we got it wrong, particularly when it has such terrible consequences. So it's a difficult thing to have to do, but I think, I, I, look, I hope, let's hope at least a lot of them now recognise that, that th they got things wrong, that wrong decisions were made. Well, uh, until and maybe we'll get to the, um, the, the public correction later. Yeah, well, until they start admitting that they got it wrong, I think the potential remains real 
that they'll do it again. So, mm. you know, I mean, next time, who knows what it'll be. We're, we're hearing news of another lethal virus being created in a lab, this time not in Wuhan. Goodness gracious. Anyway, mm. let's let's talk about, about your piece in the Oz this week. You reminded readers that the flip side of the march towards renewable energy is the rapid increase in mining activity. Do you think Chris Bowen understands all this, Nick? Uh, I don't think Chris Bowen understands much about the whole <laughs> business, to be honest. But, yeah, I mean, see, we're moving from a, from a fuel-intensive energy system to a material or minerals-intensive energy system. The amount of minerals that have to be dug up uh, to put in the kind of system that Chris Bowen is putting in, right, it's wind, solar and batteries, is huge. You know, the batteries, uh, the, the solar, the, the steel and everything that goes into one of those windmills is, is a massive amount of, of stuff that has to be done out. The concrete, 100 tonnes of concrete under the ground to stick one of those things in. The same with solar panels, photovoltaic cells and everything. But then, you know, you get to the batteries and, you know, it, this is a crisis which uh, of supply and demand that I don't think anybody's factored in. We were being told our batteries are getting better, they're getting cheaper. You know what? They're not. You know, the price of batteries for electric cars has gone up because there's a huge demand worldwide for electric cars, not just here, and a demand principally for lithium, co cobalt and those other uh, that metals that go into, into them. There's just a limited supply. You know, you one estimate that I, I read, a, a, a writer called Mark Mills from the Manhattan Institute says, we will need at least a dozen mega mines for each of a dozen different uh, metals if we're going to meet the demand that's required by 2040. And you, honestly, you just cannot do that. You can't just simply open a, a dozen mines anywhere in the world in, in any hurry these days, or certainly nowhere where you, you know, you're not threatened with you know, it's closing the borders or something. So there is going to be, if we're going to in insist on these, these, you know, 20, 30, 2050 aims, everybody's going to be chasing the same stuff. And it, the price of batteries is going to go through the roof. And the economic, that's the economic side for it. But of course, you know, the environmental side of this, you know, the, the rapaciousness of the mining industry as it rips lithium out of the ground and cobalt. And we've had some dreadful stories of kids having to work down those or instances of modern slavery. All this will come even before they get here to store our energy. So I think the idea that this renewables indicates this great new future when we, the whole world becomes a caring and cleaner place it's just nonsense. That well, like the fact whether we can actually deliver energy that way. It's nonsense that's so easily debunked. I mean, mm. and people already, it's already been debunked to, to most of the public. I mean, your story attracted hundreds of comments, yeah. nearly all of them positive. When do you, you're, mate, you're well connected with the, uh, with the Liberal Party. When is the Liberal Party going to start capitalising on all this? Well, I think it is, it, it is, it is just quietly doing that, Fred. I think, you know, the, the, thing, the thing is you've got to go with, uh, you've got to wait your moment on this. And I think the moment's going to come in the next two years, we will see so much of this, uh, these renewable schemes, you know, new solar farms going in. Uh, there's huge protests already, tractors in the streets of Ballarat protecting, protecting against new power lines. The mood is changing completely. And then come 2023, just next year, right, when the Dell power station closes down, there'll be a massive gap in supply in, in New South Wales. God forbid, but we may see power cuts with industries shutting down. 
the mood is going to change very quickly. It took Vladimir, Vladimir Putin to change the, uh, the mood in Europe. I think it'll take Chris Bowen to do it here. Uh, <laughs> you heard it here first. Chris Bowen is the Vladimir Putin of Australia. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> <laughs> I did. <laughs> Good on you. All right. Well, finally, before you go, Nick, let's uh, have a little chat about uh, the latest the latest little controversy that our, the, the lovely, charming green senator Lydia Thorpe has found herself in. She was dating Rebels bikey boss Dean Martin while she was serving on a parliamentary law enforcement <laughs> committee. There's a couple of things we've got to say about Martin. He, there's, to make clear, he's never, he doesn't have a, a criminal record, but he was associated with the Rebels bikey group. He's also the uncle of Dustin Martin from the Rich, uh, Richmond Football Club. Is that right? Yeah, well, yeah, I never. Yeah. Small world. <laughs> it is a small world. So um, what do you make of this, uh, this little uh, romance? Uh, well, maybe it was research. Maybe she was just doing... <laughs> I don't know, Fred. I'm, I'm trying to give Lydia the best possible... <laughs> Uh, put the best possible gloss on this, but it, it, it does just show that, that, you know, the hypocrisy of, of much, you know, the Greens are so big on this independent commission on corruption. Maybe this is exactly the sort of thing that this independent commission should be looking at, relationship between, you know, mad green anti-colonial MPs who want to bring the whole system crashing down and bikey gangs, right? I mean, we should be concerned, shouldn't we? <laughs> we should. This is actually a perfect example of Blair's Law, which was a law coined by Daily Telegraph uh, columnist Tim Blair, and it is the ongoing process by which the world's multiple idiocies are becoming one giant useless force. So, uh, right. you know, let bikies and greens join forces because they, uh, they, they can't really. <laughs> They'll become giant and useless, according to Tim Blair. <laughs> Good on you. Nick Cater, thanks for your time. Thank, thanks, Fred. That's Nick Cater from the Menzies Research Centre and host of Nick Cater's Battleground every Friday here on ADH TV. And before I go, you may recall that last night I had a bit of fun with a councillor in the Melbourne Shire of Mornington who wanted to give some sort of legal status to trees because she liked them more than people or something like that. Well, British cosmetics company Faith in Nature has gone one better, appointing Mother Nature herself to its board of directors. We're making nature a director of our company. Nature has an equal vote, same as any other director, same as the rest of us. Effectively appointing a director that's representing the voice of nature within the company. That person is independent of the company and we've tried really hard to ensure that there's a separation of powers because it's really important that that director feels able to act in the best interest of nature. Initially, nature's seat on the board will be taken by a lawyer from a group called, naturally, Lawyers for Nature which is working on, quote, cutting edge legal concepts related to nature, including legal representation of non-persons and how that interacts with the right to a healthy environment, unquote. Seriously, is there any doubt left at all that the sustainability caper is a religion? 
What qualifies a person to be nature's representative other than being excruciatingly sanctimonious and condescending about the destructiveness of human behavior? Will he or she take time out from board meetings to communicate with nature and seek guidance? And what if nature makes demands that the chief finance officer says we'll send the company broke? Who wins then? So many unanswered questions. And one other thing about the increasingly popular legal rights of so-called so non-persons. If we are going to extend rights to trees and animals, then some responsibilities should be negotiated into the deal. My suggestion is that animals provide us with meat to eat and trees provide us with construction materials. In return, we will help them grow and live their best possible life. That sounds so fair that I doubt either side would even need to call in the lawyers. Well, that's all from me. Thanks for your company this week. Don't forget to watch Nick Cater's Battleground tomorrow night at 8 p.m., followed by Save the Nation with the mellifluous professor, David Flint. Have a great weekend, and I'll see you after the great Alan Jones on Monday night at nine. Good night.